Well, good evening and welcome to Lost River's midweek Bible study. As you can see, we're working through uh, the Ten Commandments. If you missed the first two lessons, I'd encourage you to go back, watch each of those, and you'll be up to speed. Uh, and tonight we're going to get into the Third Commandment. And it has to do with taking the Lord's name in vain, which I think sometimes doesn't mean exactly what a lot of us think it means. So hopefully we'll explain that tonight. Maybe a good place to start is by asking you if, if you have friends or family or if you are a business owner and you have employees or your church and you have people going out into the world and they're talking about you when you're not present, how do you want them to talk about you? Or how do you want them to represent you? Most of us would say, well, I want them to represent us accurately. And that's exactly right. When, when, when we feel like we've been misrepresented, it's, it's an offense to us. And the reality is that just like you want people to represent you accurately, God wants you to accurately represent Him. And I think that that really gets to the heart of what this commandment is about. And we'll get to that, and I'll explain why as we get into our study. First, just a little bit of a review tonight. I'd like to begin by saying that the Ten Commandments help us see God's filing system of law. There's two great commandments that God has given to mankind. You probably already know what those two great commandments are. The first is that we are to love God. We're to love Him with our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, everything that we've got. We're to love God completely and entirely. And the second great commandment, Jesus says, is to love your neighbor as yourself. So love God, love your neighbor. Those are the two simple overarching rules that God has for mankind. And then the Ten Commandments can be pretty neatly nested under these two, two great commandments, can't they? The first four or five commandments have to do with man's obedience to God, showing us how do you actually love God? What does loving God actually look like? The second table of commandments tells us how we're supposed to love our neighbor. And as we've talked about in this series, America is undergoing a crisis of character. And one of the things that we've tried to emphasize is that people think that somehow we can reestablish the character of people in society treating one another like they should, of people loving their neighbor by not committing adultery and stealing and killing without paying any attention to the first table. That it really doesn't matter what God we serve or whether or not we serve Him by means of idols or just switch and shift the shape of God into whatever we want it to be, that that doesn't really matter. And that we can just go about abusing the name of God as we feel uh, warrant to do. And that we can simply ignore His commandments and His holy days. And that we can dishonor the authority figures that God has placed in our life. We can kind of go along and do that and still have a society in which people don't go, don't go around murdering one another. That they still take one another's lives seriously. But the fact of the matter is, unless we know who God is, and, we're, and, and we don't unless we recognize Him as our Creator in whose image we and our neighbor is made, we're not really going to take our life or their life very seriously. 
And so the character crisis of not valuing human life, which is seen in abortion and in murder and in a thousand other ways in which we diminish the humanity of other people, is directly related to our failure to worship God and Him alone. And it continues on when we think about not committing adultery. And when it comes to not stealing, recognizing the property rights of other people, which is in a sad state of affairs today. And when we do not bear false witness, if we'll not recognize the image of God in other people, then what does it matter what we say about them or do to their reputation? And then finally, he says, do not covet. Do not live in a way that you're plotting how you can take other people's things. So loving our neighbor looks like this. And the reality is you're not really going to have that in a society for very long. You can't keep that over the long haul if you don't honor and recognize this first and foremost. So this, I think, is a helpful way for us to all understand God's law for mankind Love God, love your neighbor. Here's what it looks like to love God. Here's what it looks like to love your neighbor. And you can't really do that until you do this first. So I hope that that makes some sense to you. We've already looked at these two things in the first two lessons, that we're to have no other gods. You know, there's only two categories of being. There's creator and created. There's the one who made everything. And then there's everything that has been made. God is not made. He is the maker. And so he is in a class by himself. He is the creator God. And we're to worship no one other than the God who created heaven and earth and everything in them. And he's also the God who has a history with us as his people. For Israel, at the giving of the Ten Commandments, he was the God who had delivered them out of Egyptian slavery and from the house of bondage under Pharaoh's tyrannical control and brought them liberty and freedom as he brought them across the Red Sea. That was the God they were to serve and him alone. And we as Christians, as history has developed, have been set free on an even greater scale. Through Jesus Christ, God has set us free from the bondage of sin and of death and of everything that binds and corrupts and ruins our souls, God set us free. So we're to worship no God, but our maker and our redeemer. And then he tells us that we're not to worship him through graven images. We talked about that last week. And that means in part that we're not to worship God as we would like him to be, or as we imagine him to be, but as he has revealed himself to us in scripture and especially in the person of Jesus Christ. You know, there's often a, a dissimilarity between who God is and who I am. And one of the ways that we try to flatten out that difference is by just downgrading God to where he suits me a little bit better, where I'm a little bit more comfortable with him. And that's what the second commandment prohibits. Isn't it much better for us to leave God where he is perfect and us who are flawed to represent him and see him as he actually is and us do the changing, us be elevated and not bring him down, but us be transformed into the likeness of his image, which is perfectly revealed in Jesus Christ. So that's what we've talked about so far. And that brings us to the third commandment, which is basically spoken like this in Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse seven, you shall not take the name of the Lord, your God, in vain. 
we are um, to not use his name in a way that is flippant or uh, derogatory or as a curse word. That's, that's at least the, the idea that I took that to mean most of my life, certainly as a young person growing up. And it's correct. Uh, certainly, we should not throw God's name around flippantly or use it as an exclamation point or use it to curse people or objects that we're frustrated with. And that's what people usually think of when they think of the third commandment, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. I remember once uh, as a young man having a co-worker who was really bad about this. His, his thing was saying Jesus Christ and using it in every way imaginable as the butt of jokes, as an expression of contempt and frustration, as a way of simply uh, making a, an exclamation point. And one day I just finally told him, I would really appreciate it if you would stop doing that. And he was apologetic and said, hey, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't mean anything by it. But that's exactly the problem, isn't it? It's taking the name of the one person who was sinless and perfect and who gave his life for us and treating it as if it means nothing. It, just because my vocabulary isn't strong enough to make my point, I just want to throw his name in there to try to make my point better. Well, that's a vain and empty use of a name that we ought to honor and revere. In fact, God is the creator he is ultimate and he is infinite and he is weighty and significant beyond all comparison. And when we use his name flippantly or use it as a curse word, we're, we're treating it as if, as if it were nothing. And that's a vain use of the name of something that isn't vain, but is weighty and significant. And so it's more than a prohibition against Hollywood and movies and TV shows using God as a curse word. Certainly it is prohibited by the, this commandment, but it's more than that. It has to do primarily with us who are Christians, those who have formerly covenanted with God and then claim to represent him to the world, doing so in a way that's inaccurate. You remember in our introduction, I said, how do you like to be represented by your employees, by your children, uh, us as a church? How do we want members to represent us as we go out and as they go out into the world? And we said that we want to be represented accurately. And God wants the same thing out of the people who are called by his name. If you're a Christian, if you're a child of God, God expects you to represent him well in the world. And when we don't, terrible things happen. This is our responsibility, and this is the primary thrust of this commandment. When we think about uh, this, let's look at the, the words themselves a little more closely. He tells us, you know, you, that is in the original context, Israel, a people that God has delivered and set free, you who have been joined to me by this covenant that we're making, you are not to take. And the word take is very significant. And perhaps it's where we get off on this a little bit. To take literally means to lift something up, to pick something up. So think about a backpack that you would pick up and then you would put it on your back. You've taken it on your back. A metaphorical use of this that's common to all of us is when a woman gets married she takes the name of her husband. 
She's taking that name upon herself and all the rights and privileges and honors that may go with his name are now conferred upon her. And she also accepts then the obligation of trying to represent that name well as she goes forward in life. That's exactly the significance here of God telling Israel and now us as Christians that when you take my name upon you, when you're joined with me by a covenant relationship, it is now imperative that when you take that name, the name of the Lord your God, that you do not do so in a way that is vain. Now, what does vain mean? Well, if you think about the book of Ecclesiastes, where he talks about vanity of vanities, all is vanity, and, and you think about that word as it's used there, it describes something that's meaningless, something that's light and insignificant, something that's transient and passing. And none of those things rightly can be associated with the Lord our God. God is weighty. God is significant. God is permanent. And God is the ultimate in meaning. In fact, He is the reason that anything has meaning. And so when we use His name in a way, taking it upon ourselves, and then living as if it had no significance in our life, that it was a passing thing, or that it doesn't really matter in terms of how I conduct myself in the world or treat other people, then we are taking His name in a way that makes no difference. And that's a vanity, and it's forbidden. So what I want us to see in uh, the next few moments is the significance then of, of us taking His name on. It's something that both the Old and the New Testament talk about is this association between God's people and the name of God Himself. We're told in Deuteronomy 28, verse 10, where Moses is giving the law to Israel, that when these people, the Israelites, take His name on, then all the other people, that is the other nations, the people of the earth, shall see that you, Israel, are called by the name of the Lord uh, uh, that you're called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. You see, Israel was taking on the name of the Lord, being transformed by the name of the Lord, because it was something that meant something to them, such that when other peoples, the peoples of the earth, saw the nation of Israel, they would see some, them as, 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 as something different and distinct. And it would produce uh, fear in them. Now, that could have to do with just military fear, because God would their, was their shield and deliverer who would fight for them. And they would not want to go up and attack Israel. But it, it probably has also the idea of simply respect and reverence for Israel. Because of the close association that they had with the perfect God had elevated them and their society in such a way that people held them in highest regard, and therefore held the name of their God in highest regard. So you see that we as the people of God represent His name to the nations of the earth. It's also mentioned in Isaiah 43, 7, where God's summoning His people, Israel, together again. And He says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So whether we're talking about Old Testament Israel or the New Testament church and Christians, God has formed us. He's made us, and He's made us for a reason. He's made us for His glory. 
And He's conferred great glory on us when He's given us His name to be called by. And so we need to bear that name responsibly and well and make sure that the way that we conduct ourselves is in fact bringing glory to our Maker and Redeemer. One more in 2 Chronicles 7 verse 14. Familiar passage that's often cited today and maybe a little bit misappropriated, but not too badly, I, I think. He simply says here that if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, again, that may have primarily been a promise to physical Israel as a nation, but there's probably a principle there that applies to us today as well. When we get so upset at the, at the way that our nation is behaving and the way it's conducting itself, then what should we do? Well, we're His people, the ones who are called by His name. We need to humble ourselves. We need to seek His face. We need to stop bearing His name for nothing in vain and start living out the significance of what it means to be the people of God. And when we do that, then God promises to respond in a way that will prove favorable to us and to our land, to our nation. But I just want us again to see the connection between the people of God and the name of God that they bear. It's not only an Old Testament theme. We find this also in the New Testament as well. In Acts eleven twenty six, 26, a familiar passage says that the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. I don't know if this was a derisive term that the people, unbelievers in Antioch used, or if it was something that they gave themselves, but they seem to have accepted it. And they were called Christians. And I like that because a Christian is an apt description of what a disciple is. We're Christ followers. We've taken the name of Jesus Christ upon ourselves. He's our head. He's the bridegroom of the church, and we are His body and bride. And so we are Christians. We've taken the name of Jesus. And then in James 2 and verse 7, we see that uh, James speaks of how the high and mighty in his day and time were the ones who were blaspheming the honorable name by which you were called. So the name of Jesus, that honorable name, was the name that the early Christians were called by, and it was an honorable name. So people being identified by their God is a human thing, and Christians being identified with the Lord Jesus Christ is proper, and it's something that we all recognize. Now, one other passage on this is Matthew 28 and verse 19. That's where Jesus told the disciples, and, and by extension us, what our mission is, what our marching orders are. He says, Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to be obedient to everything I have commanded you. So we, when we're baptized, put on the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We put on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Baptism is many things. Sometimes we get so focused on one particular aspect of it that we forget the larger picture. But it is certainly no less than a 
renaming ceremony. It is a christening, if you will, in which we are taking upon ourselves the name, a new name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we are adopted into the family of God and we have a new father, we have a new brother and we have a new spirit dwelling in us. And we are now associated by this. And this is the name, the name of the Lord that we are identified by. Now, this is really important to think about because God really means business when he says, if you're going to accept my name, if you're going to take my name upon you, then I want you to do so with the utmost seriousness. And if you fail to do so, you're not only going to be uh, failing to, to do what you need to do for yourself, but you're also failing to fulfill your whole purpose for existence in the world. That's what happened to Israel when it failed to honor the name of God by the way that they lived. And Paul the Apostle points that out in Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 21, when he says, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You preach against stealing, do you steal? You say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? And then he goes on to say, You who boast in the law, Will you dishonor God by breaking the law? Now think about that. Here's a reference to Israel. They've given the Ten Commandments. They're given the law of God as something that would set them apart from all the nations and make them revered among the nations and cause people to revere the God by whose name they were called. But instead of that, by the time Jesus and Paul rolls around, the Gentiles are laughing at Israel. And Israel is not on top, but they are on the bottom and subjugated by the Gentile powers. And the Gentile powers did not have a high regard for the God of Israel because of the way Israel had conducted itself. Because they had broken the very laws that they were preaching to everyone else. Hypocrisy is basically what this commandment is all about. Saying one thing, pretending to be one thing, but actually living a different way. And here was the outcome. For as it is written, the name of God, whose name you had taken, is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now think about that as Christians. And when we think about the nation of, that we live in at, at, at this point in time, why is it that Hollywood feels so free about taking the Lord's name in vain in a verbal sense? Why is it that your boss and coworker or your next door neighbor is so free in using the name of Jesus Christ as a exclamation point or in some offhanded comment? Could it be that the name of our God is being blasphemed among the Gentiles, people who aren't Christians, because of you, because of me, because I haven't taken the Lord's name with the significance and weightiness and meaning that I should have. That I've taken his name, but then I've gone on and I've conducted myself just like the rest of the world. They hear me preach all these things, but they don't see me live them in a way that makes a difference. I've taken the name of the Lord on me in vain. And that's a terrible thing to do. And it, it, it comes with a terrible price for us. And it, and it certainly comes for a terrible price for the world. And most importantly, 
that dishonors our God. So he says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. You know, if you are a member of a Christian church that doesn't really believe in the virgin birth, doesn't believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead, and advocates all sorts of morality positions that are clearly prohibited and opposite to what the Scripture says. You're taking the Lord's name in vain. And God's not going to hold guiltless those who do that. If you're part of a conservative Christian group, but you're characterized by hypocrisy, you say one thing, but you really live a different kind of life, or you just go around judgmentally looking down your nose at everyone else, or you have elevated the commandments and the traditions of your group to the position that you're saying that they're actually the commandments of God. Well, God's not going to hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. If you're a Christian husband and you stood before a group of witnesses and before God and those witnesses and you promised, you vowed, that you would love and protect and honor your wife and be faithful to her until death, but you neglect her and you are unfaithful to her, you are taking the name of the Lord your God in vain. And He will not hold guiltless those who do so. If you're a wife who made a similar promise that you would honor and respect your husband, but you run him down in public and with your friends and you belittle him. You have made a promise and a vow in the sight of God that you're not keeping. And it's because you're not really honoring the God that you made that promise to. If you're a Christian and you go about your life, whatever it is in the business world and your financial dealings and the contracts that you make or in that you break or the words that you speak and the way that you behave toward other people. And you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and yet you disobey His word at every turn. You're taking His name in vain. And Jesus would do well to ask, and does well to ask, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you do not do the things that I say? And as Isaiah would say, these people honor me with their lips. Their hearts are far from me. All of that has to do with breaking the third commandment, which is you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes my name or his name in vain. I hope that this lesson will be an encouragement. I know it's a challenge. This is the Ten Commandments. I mean, what did we expect? We need to be confronted at times with the seriousness with which we are taking the God that we claim to serve. And if and when we fall short, we need to always turn back once more to the cross of Jesus Christ, the one man who actually did honor the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and who truly did love his neighbor as himself, and find in his cross the forgiveness that we need and the courage to rise up 
follow him and bear his name more properly and reflect him more accurately than ever before. Let's close our study again with a word of prayer. Our God and our Father, we humble ourselves before you, acknowledging that you are ultimate, that you are almighty, that you are weighty and significant above all else, but that we in our forgetfulness and our self-centeredness and in our love for the things that are made above the things, the one who made them, often do not take you as seriously as we should. We thank you for this commandment that reminds us to turn our hearts once again toward you, to lift up your name upon us, and to do so in a way that is for real, that's honest and sincere, not hypocritical, and that reflects to a watching world the reality of who you are, that we represent you well as best we can in this world, and that the world, that America, that our country, and the nations round about would no longer blaspheme your name because of us, but they would fear your name because of how we have represented you. We ask for the strength to do this in the name of the Lord Jesus, and amen.